this is Kina with Complex PTSD Recovery, and today I have another guest that I'm going to be interviewing, Justin Sanseri, and we are going to be talking about polyvagal theory. So um, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, actually the first episode of my podcast was about this. Polyvagal theory describes the way that our nervous system responds and perceives uh, danger or safety and how that influences our emotional and mental states. And I found Justin's work online the other day when I was looking into polyvagal theory and wanted to ask him some questions. So before we jump in, I'm just going to let him introduce himself. I'm Justin Sinceri. <laughs> I'm, um, as I say on the podcast, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm obsessed with the polyvagal theory. It's been kind of my, yeah, I mean, truthfully, my obsession. I have uh, consumed as much information about it as I possibly can. Um, I do private practice at nighttime with adults, but I work in the daytime with teenagers in a public school, uh, just doing one-on-one -on -one therapy. Um, I've been a therapist for, I think, like 12 years now. Um, parenting groups and working with teens and families. Um, only recently I started working with uh, adults and I've been loving doing that uh, for the past year or so in, in private practice. Um, I have a podcast called Stuck Not Broken. I got a blog, I mean, a whole bunch of stuff, but yeah, justinlmft.com is kind of the hub for all that. Awesome. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear how you first like discovered polyvagal theory. Was it when you were already working as a therapist or still in school? Yeah, there was zero teaching about polyvagal theory or um, anything somatic in my uh, graduate education. Honestly, there was pretty much zero. It was heavy focus on psychotherapy uh, models and theory and whatnot, which is well, all well and good, but there was zero attention paid to the body. And we kept hearing about how trauma lives in the body, but no one really ever explained it. And there was one summer, so I worked for a school district, like I said, and there was one summer I was working with um, somebody who had heavy, heavy, heavy history of trauma. And to say they had CPTSD is probably pretty accurate. And so I was not super happy with how things were going in therapy. And I was doing the best I could, honestly, as a therapist. And like, there's not the progress I'd like to see. I'd like to see all my clients uh, make progress and this was, wasn't happening. And so I decided that summer, typically during the summer, kids don't want to do anything related to school, including meet with their school therapist. And so I use that summer as, I use summers as an opportunity to learn, to develop, to, to create curriculum trainings and whatnot. And so that summer I was like, all right, I'm gonna come at this trauma stuff, assuming that I know nothing. I keep hearing about how it lives in the body. So let's get more curious about that. And I went on to YouTube like any good, a scholar <laughs> and researcher right and I found I just typed in like trauma and just you know whatever came up came up and through a very short wormhole of YouTube I found Peter Levine who is the creator of somatic experiencing and I saw his videos and saw him working with a couple of different people and I'm like oh, can we swear on this or no yeah yeah go for it I'm like this is bullshit I don't yeah. believe this <laughs> That was like my honest reaction I was like, no, nah, bullshit, no. Yeah. And because he did some pretty incredible things and the framework of it kind of made sense, but I just wasn't buying into it. And I kept, but I suspended my disbelief. Again, I was assuming I knew nothing. And I'm like, okay, there, maybe there's something here. And I just kind of kept pursuing that and buying into it. And then that brought me to a lecture from Dr. Stephen Porges, who created the polyvagal theory. And that was a deeper drill down into the biological aspect of it, the brainstem stuff, the autonomic nervous system. And that was 
complex but understandable enough for me and it, it i understood enough to be like i want there's more here and i really just did this deep deep dive that summer as hard as i could um and learned and read as, and i'm a slow reader so <laughs> i spent a lot of time reading and just consuming his lectures and his interviews and and trying to figure this out in a way that i could reword it because i knew it'd be important in my own development but also just as as a member of a public school and my and my class like i have to be able to take this information and, and reword it in a way that's going to make sense to anybody so that's that's kind of where it came from was being stuck on a client like as far as how therapy was going and then just being open to new ideas yeah yeah um yeah i think that's like a pretty typical experience for a lot of like therapists and social workers is really very little to no education on the somatic aspects of trauma and mental health um and yeah. so therefore very little exposure to that for most clients in therapy too um so yeah. I definitely hope that this will become more mainstream because I think it's really revolutionary for a lot of people. I think it is. And I'm hearing from uh, students here and there that just reach out to me that they are hearing about polyvagal theory in class. It's not super common, I don't think, but if, it's if happening. Not it is. Yeah. And if not polyvagal, there's some sort of somatic awareness coming into the classroom. Yeah. For the master's level classroom. So I think it's happening. Yeah. I wish I had gotten it, but I honestly learned better in trial by fire and um, you know, identifying where I'm, I'm have an obstacle and then figuring out, okay, what am I doing wrong? What am I not getting? So I, I learned better from that anyways. Yeah. I think if a teacher had taught me and I probably would have been more, more resistant to it. Yeah. Resistant to it. I'm the same way. Um, <laughs> yeah. So how do you feel like it's changed your practice since you've learned about this piece of things? How does that, how does that change the way you approach clients and it's, trauma? It's fundamentally changed everything I think about my life and seeing myself in, not just as a therapist, but just myself and seeing myself as, as a more whole, uh, human being, you know, so it's not just, I'm not just these, um, collection of words in my brain that kind of float around or emotions that I have, but there are things underneath all these things that are in my biology and I can feel them. I can actually feel these things activating on the polyvagal ladder from Deb Dana. And so it's, it's fundamentally changed how I view myself and how I view myself in the therapy room, but also seeing a client, I can identify now where they're kind of at on that polyvagal ladder and to identify if they're in the shutdown state or the flight fight state or safety state, and we might go into all these things, but it, it now gives me this par um, a new paradigm, but also, also this pathway, like I can, I can see where they're at and where we need to end up more or less. And there's now a pathway, a predictable pathway of how we can get there. So yeah. my job now is to help them to regulate through something called co-regulation and also, um, you know, help them learn self-regulation skills and, and whatnot as, as well. But I can see that the pathway, now there's a, a map, it's a roadmap basically. You were talking about how polyvagal theory kind of helped you feel more like whole as a person. Yeah. And I think that that reconnection between the mind and the body is something that a lot of people really struggle with and that yeah. a lot of times traditional top down therapies can um, can almost like reinforce people's habits to be kind of stuck in that like rumination yeah. and like pro and, and I'm speaking from personal experience with that too because before I even tried to become a, a therapist I was in therapy as a client for you know 15 years starting when I was very young and I was always the type of person who was very um, analytical and obsessive and um yeah. was much more comfortable with that than being like in my body or in my emotions and i yeah. never had a therapist who challenged that or who helped me access a different 
way to process or heal. It was all very much like um, really getting into that analytical space with me. And then I would have a lot of therapists yeah. say, oh, you're so smart. You understand uh, You understand yourself so well. <laughs> and I would go home and be like, well, I still feel terrible. So yeah. I, it was really um, counterproductive for me. And I know that's not everyone's experience, but um, yeah. I'm, I don't I'm, think it's uncommon though. Yeah, yeah. I, I really don't think that's uncommon. I think therapists, we are traditionally trained in the headspace, like in the, in the uh, like I said before, the the modalities and the theories, and we do pretty well in there. And it, maybe it's a comfort space for a therapist to, to kind of exist in that area, right? And so when these stories come in in therapy, we can stay in the stories. We can stay in gaining, quote unquote, insight I and mean, putting together puzzle pieces of, oh, this is from the past and this happened currently. And do you see how these things are connected? And we that's fun for us, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's not necessarily helpful. That's not necessarily helpful. And, and I hear from my clients who are like, yeah, we did a lot of insight stuff and I connected some pieces and, but I, I didn't change. Nothing changed. Right. And so the, the mind body thing is, um, well, there's a lot more going on that just we're not paying attention to. And yeah. I think human beings in general have gotten exceptionally good at distracting themselves from all the body stuff, you know, the, the bottom up kind of stuff. Like we are obsessed with entertainment incessantly and with uh, distractions and ignoring our own pain. Right. And that has a function to it, but um, we've gotten so good at that, that I think as a species, as a whole, we've really in large part um, lost connection with a huge aspect of what it's like to exist moment to moment. Yeah. And so that bottom up stuff is a big, big, big part of that. And I think polyvagal theory and these somatic type of therapies, they focus not just on the somatic, but it's in unifying because there is some top down stuff and there is some bottom up stuff and we can differentiate those two, but really it's, it's whole, it's whole person. Yeah. It's creating integration where there's been total like alienation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not easy. It is not easy <laughs> to do so. And it's not easy to get back into that that mindset is not back in, in that body set, I'll say, to recognize and be like, oh, there is some stuff going on underneath uh, all of my thoughts and all of my emotions too. There's actually some somatic things I can feel. I can experience these feelings in my body, in my muscles, in my you know gut. I can feel these things and actually experience them. And then they're actually telling me something and there's an impulse that I want to do next. So it's it's um, it's a, a learning, a, a, a actual cognitive like we have to learn that but also emotionally build a tolerance to do that kind of work right. and then really come into the present moment and be with that and then feel the like okay what what, what does my body want to do next because there's something going on that is probably been stuck for a very long time yeah have you found that um learning about the the somatic base of emotions and thoughts helps decrease like shame or feelings of brokenness yeah. with your clients because that's something that I feel like I've noticed um in myself and, and in other people is that understanding the actual like physiological functions kind of is like a relief you're like oh there's like more going on than just like me being crazy <laughs> yeah I would say so um I the only caveat I would put on that is if the person's ready to hear that I think it's it's really great new paradigm, new understandings of how we exist and why we exist and why we are get stuck in different defensive states. And it's, I think it's really helpful for someone who's like, okay, why, why is this happening? Why am I like this? Why won't I change? Why, why, why? And then I can be like, oh, I have an answer. Here, here's, here's the new paradigm. And then it's like, oh, but for someone who's not in that place quite yet, like I've attempted with a couple of clients to be like, all right, let me just kind of give you this information and see how you feel about this. And it goes nowhere. Like they're just not quite ready for it. They're not at that place where they're like, why, why, why? Right. 
but what, yeah, once those questions come out and they get the answer, it is extremely, I think, humanizing. Um, I think it's, there's no judgment to it. It it is just, it's just our biology and our biology exists to help increase our chances of survival. And by increasing our chances of survival, it increases the chances that we will procreate and pass on this genetic strain. Like that's, that's it. Yeah. (laughs) So there's, there's no value. There's no judgment. It is what it is. Now you take that basic understanding and then people will automatically apply it to their life. Yeah. And they'll go to whatever point in time and, and then the light bulbs go off and it's like, oh, so that's why I reacted this way. And now there's no judgment to it. It's not because I'm defective. It's not because I'm dumb or I'm missing some piece to myself or whatever it is. It's just like, oh, that, that was my body um, going into a defensive state because it perceived or neurocepted that it had to. Yeah. And the, it neurocepted that I, it had to survive in that moment or, yeah. or to shut down in order to increase chances of survival because it thought it was going to die. Um, it, it becomes like, that's it. That's all there is to it on yeah. a factual fundamental level. It's and like there's, destigmatizing. There's no, there's no there's, yeah, yeah. Right. that yeah. applies to every single one of us. It on the surface of it, when I hear that, well, I guess when it comes to mental health, what I was taught in school, and I think it's still commonplace is, is the chemical imbalance paradigm. And maybe there's something to that, but not a single one of us therapists is testing for chemical imbalances. Right. I've never seen that. We just sort of say it in my opinion, we kind of put it out there as an explanation, but and that is like, there's something different about you, the client, like you have this chemical imbalance, right? Or you have this disorder and here it is. See, it's in the, it's in the DSM. You fit every single one of these. You have this, I'm, I'm the person upon high who knows what's best and I can diagnose you and give you labels. And that's a lot different than we're all mammals. We're all just human mammals and we all have the same biology. Every single one of us goes through these things every single day. Yeah. We all go through the flight by energy, the shutdown stuff safety, every single one of us, every single day, some of us more intensely than others based on history and upbringing and culture and all kinds of stuff come into that. But it, but it's not this clean cut, like, this is how you're different. This yeah. is how I'm different than you. It's like, this is all of us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it really takes away from some of the pathologizing nature of like a lot of people's mental health experiences. And I think some of the main things that I probably got from polyvagal theory was just this idea that like, you make sense. Like I make sense. You make sense. Um, your responses are actually like perfectly understandable considering your life experiences, um, which was really nice. And, and the other thing that I found really uh, and, like exciting about it was this idea that we're wired for both like protection and connection. So, you know, we have this biological wiring for like seeking closeness and attachment and safety from bonds with others, but yeah. we also have this wiring to protect ourselves from danger and to keep ourselves safe. And um, that's one of the main things that gets kind of uh, tangled up with like CPTSD or chronic trauma, where if you have these repeated ongoing experiences that show you that people aren't safe, um, but at the same time, you're still as a mammal, you're always going to have those biological wirings to right. seek safety in connection. It creates this like really distressing and disorganized attachment pattern um, for a lot of people. And um, yep. that it just made so much sense to me when I kind of put those pieces together. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to that is that it doesn't quite end. So we all have need, like needs like biological drives, biological needs to connect. And I, ideally, we get that growing up. Ideally, we get that with safe parents and, and people in our lives, but not, not everyone gets that, obviously. I would actually think that, um, I don't know if the majority of people don't get the, the safe enough parent. I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. 
there's a lot of bad parenting practices out there. There's a lot of abuse. I mean, it's, it's absolutely rampant. So I think there's a, a really good amount of people who simply don't get the fundamentals of, of what they need on a biological level, just basic safety, basic connection, basic acceptance and belonging and getting your needs met. Um, there's a lot of that happening. So, but it doesn't, it doesn't go away. Our need to connect doesn't go away. It's, it's always lifelong. Yeah. It's lifelong. It's, it's lifelong. And even if we didn't get it from a parent or whoever, um, that, that need is still underneath everything. And, you might, we might focus on this emotion being an issue, but that emotion might be being driven by some sort of defensive state underneath it. And that might be driven by the trauma or, uh, or not just a traumatic, potentially traumatic event, but not getting some sort of need met growing up. Yeah. Right. So, but it doesn't, it doesn't go away. That exists within every single one of us at every moment. And we, we are always, our biology is always seeking connection. Yeah. Whether we recognize that and feel it and allow it to happen, uh, you know, it, it, it's there. It, that compulsion to seek connection with other human beings or other mammals right. is always there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really love the name of your podcast, Stuck Not Broken, because that is one of the things that I think is super consistent with, you know, with CPTSD is being stuck in a defensive state and losing access to your ventral vagal, like your safe and connected state. And so, you know, people get used to with CPTSD, just living in a constant state of like hyper arousal or, or shut down for, you know, months or years um, yeah. to the point where they might not even, they might not even have a, a memory or an anchor for what it feels like to be safe and connected. You know, right. they're used to living in a world that just really does feel dangerous all the time. And I think, you know, the, the ways that that happens also manifest in, in a lot of the mental health issues that people deal with like you see you know depression or anxiety and understanding kind of the somatic roots of that uh like yeah. you know just some someone who's living in kind of a shutdown depressive state and i i know a lot of people one of the things that um, pete walker who is also a licensed therapist says about cptsd is that people with cptsd tend to get diagnosed with like 10 different things when they're when they're seeking treatment right. because it manifests in all these different yeah. ways and i have cptsd and i can count i can count off like eight diagnoses that i got before the age of 18 and none yep. of them apply anymore to me um yep. since yep. since kind of healing my trauma on a deeper level yeah. so yeah um can you talk a little bit more about that idea of kind of getting stuck in one of those states and kind of what yeah. that looks like uh, well, it looks like kind of what you laid out there i, I agree <laughs> with you there's working with uh, working with kids and teenagers and families for years now you can have three four or five therapists that see the same case and conceptualize it in different ways and have different diagnostic um, labels that they would say. And I would see that in treatment teams that people would, they would use different um, diagnostic labels. Like they would say, this kid has ADHD and someone else would say, no, no, it's, it's bipolar disorder. And somebody else would say, no, no, it's, it's blah, blah, blah. And I, I would always look at the, and be like, this kid's just kind of stuck in their development. Like they just, they have the potential to continue to grow. I don't know what I never, I still struggle with uh, buying into the diagnosis. I get the diagnosis has a place. I, I get it. But when it comes down to it, I'm like, this kid's just, they're stuck in their development. That's, that's right. how I see things. Not just a kid, but adults as well. We just get stuck along the way. And what I would see is that when, when I just do some really fundamental basic therapy things, and even with like severe kids, if I just give them validation and recognition for them as a human being and take them seriously, like at least in session, I could see them start to develop and they would grow and mature little bits and pieces 
calm down those ADHD behaviors in session when they got those basic human things, therapeutic things. Um, it didn't look like ADHD to me anymore. I'm like, well, why, what happened? Like, where did this behavior go? Like I would see some fundamental. And then I with parenting groups, I would teach parents to do just basic things like say, I love you every day. in, in some way that feels true for you, praise, uh, you give them, you know, utilize positive consequences, these kind of things, like just do fundamental basic things. And parents would tell me, especially with saying, I love you, that they, they just started doing that. They would see some huge turnarounds, like just from having simple connections back in place that the behaviors that they would see before that we would label with all kinds of labels, all of a sudden it's like, they just kind of started changing. I, I started, we started expressing love. We started playing. I listened to their feelings and things started to change. And not, I'm not talking about like simple, like I'm talking about like serious behavioral issues. We'll call it behavioral issues. Right. And really severe family uh what do you want? Dysfunction. I'll say dysfunction. Like things would change because they were just kind of stuck in their development. And once they get these basic needs met, emotional needs as well, they started to develop. That's what I would see over and over and over again. And once I learned about polyvagal theory, it's like, oh, that's, that's why. Right. Like they're, they're just sort of stuck in a defensive state. Their autonomic nervous system is primed for defense and not for social engagement. Yeah. So to ask them to sit down in class and use their cognitive skills and listen and learn and retain information, it's just, it's a huge ask. It's just not going to happen. Um, likewise, getting along with siblings is, we can still expect it, but it's, it, now I see like, oh, they're just, they're in a defensive state. Their body due to whatever, you know, growing up, whatever their conditions were like, their body's primed to run away. I, I'm not going to expect them to sit down and, and, uh, or to be able to have a safe hug with, with their sibling or somebody else. Like I just, that I see like that, that that's why they simply cannot yeah cannot do these things as, at least in a genuine way so it was just to, I just I always saw things as a matter of being stuck I more like I felt it yeah yeah and then once I learned it it was like oh that, those are the words those are the concepts for the things that I've just kind of felt yeah and now it makes a lot more sense yeah and I think a lot of people have that sense in themselves too that they're like stuck and since i i post a lot about like the nervous system and polyvagal theory and stuff um and so i got like comments from people online and one of the things that i that i see people ask a lot is like okay so like i'm totally stuck in a flight state i've just been stuck in flight forever or like i'm always just bouncing back and forth between like yeah. flight and freeze but what do I do? Like, how, how do I relearn how to feel safe when that's something that maybe hasn't been accessible to me ever? And yeah, I would, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. That's the issue, right? That, that is a, that's it. It's like, well, what do I do now? And I don't blame people for, I, I go, I go to that energy too. I go to like, well, what do I do about it? I had hired a coach and she'll call me out on it. <laughs> and it really, it comes down to, can you, it's a big ask. I don't expect people to do this right off the bat but can you be with the energy? Can you be with your defensive energy in a non-judgmental way and really kind of feel it and experience it? And it's not easy. Um, I, if, if this is the first time someone's hearing this, I do not expect them to go sit and meditate and feel all that stuff and to be cured. That's not the way it's going to work. But ideally what we want to do is that is the goal is eventually that this defensive energy, if you're coming from a shutdown place, which is the bottom of the polyvagal ladder, how, how, does your audience know about the, these kind of concepts? I think most of them do. And if they don't, I have a resource guide with a ton cool. of like info about it. So yeah, I'll continue. keep going there. Yeah. So if you're at the bottom of your polyvagal ladder, it's, can you sit with that shutdown disconnection and loneliness and fogginess and dissociation? Maybe can you be with that enough to where the, the, the sympathetic energy of the fight flight state returns 
once you can mindfully attune to the biology, like once whatever state you're in, that's when the autonomic nervous system can start to re-regulate. So from shutdown into your sympathetic state, it's going to be a return of this sympathetic energy and it's going to feel really intense. Yeah. It feel it's going to feel, it might feel like anger or irritability um, or even rage. It's going to feel really intense. So it, it's a big ask. And the more important thing, rather than jumping straight to feeling all the stuff, I would encourage people to begin to tap into their capacity to feel connection and safety and trust. It's there. It, it can happen. Yeah. So it's possible. And I have a course, it's called Building Safety Anchors. That, that, that's what it's for, right? So it's there. It's like what in the day, just day to day, what brings you a little bit of safe? It, it could be a texture. Like it could be something that you just hold in my, in my office right now. You can see the lighting behind me. Like I just, I like these dim lights. I feel safe. It, when I have the main light on, it's overwhelming. It's it's like a glaring bright thing, right? And it's I'm not in danger, but I know that when I my lights are down like this, I just feel like I can breathe easier. Yeah. I feel more likely to socially connect with somebody. I do. So if space for me, I'm a pretty tall person. I need space. I don't I don't do well in cramped spaces. And I, I know that if I'm a cramped space, I feel more in a flight energy. So it, it's stuff like like that, like these little things. If you can just notice like what brings you a relief, not substances, not substance use, nothing like that, but like what natural things, what connections with people, what things in the environment, what music pieces, like what can bring you a, just a little bit of like, oh, this is different. I actually feel kind of safe or I feel my breathing shifted in a, in a more positive, easier way. Yeah. And when you can do those things and notice them and, and really just kind of pause and allow yourself to feel it, what you're going to do is, is actually activate the top of your ladder, the safe and social state, the ventral vagal pathways. You're, you're going to turn those on even for just tiny, tiny amounts. And the more you can do that, you're really going to exercise your capacity to stay in that, those pathways. Yeah. Now, the more you do that, it's going to build something called the vagal break. And the vagal break is the influence of your social engagement system on your heart. It keeps your heart at a calmer pace. So when you do, when you are ready, or when that energy does come up, that defensive energy, your safe and social state will stay more active, more online, keep your heart at a calmer pace. If that's going to happen, that means you'll have less flight fight energy. Right. And return to a grounded state more easily. Yes. Like it's more accessible. Yeah. You'll be able to tolerate more and more. And I, and I see that in therapy with my clients that over time that they will begin to tolerate that stuff more and more and more. And I've had a couple handful of sessions where that stuff surges and it's, it's a lot and it's kind of like panic mode and we just kind of got to get through the moment and it's yeah. that energy surges. It's intense. And that's not the way we want to go about things. It just kind of happens sometimes. Um, but ideally we want to do things in, in little bits and pieces. And that's what I find to be the most helpful is when they build the strength of their bagel break, their social engagement system, that when the defensive stuff does come up in session, I can say, Hey, well, I noticed you got a little bit tense or you got a little bit, um, your, your breathing got more shallow or something like that. I can, I can kind of point that out and bring their conscious awareness to it. Yeah. But they're in the moment, they're safe. They're connected with me. We're together. And now we're going to tap into, yeah, my calves do feel really tense. I feel this impulse to run. Yeah. And that's real. That probably comes from some old stuff. Right. So then it's like, let's just notice it. You're not going to get up and run. I guess you, you could, if you want, but you're not going to get up and run. Let's just kind of notice it and be with it. Right. And then what I'll do is just do that as much as you can. And then we're going to go right back to our safety feelings. And we're going to do this thing called pendulation where we feel safe and connected. And then we're going to go back to the pain a little bit and then come back to the safe. Cause we're going to, that's, that's ideally how we can 
bring that energy up is through pendulation in bits and spurts. It's called titration, like little bits at a time. Yeah. So not all at once, ideally, but in little bits and spurts, build more of a tolerance to it. And that's how we can get the energy to kind of return in a, in a more manageable way. And I, th- I think in a healthier way also is, is over time. So I'm hearing you say that just kind of learning how to tune into those, those nervous system states and approach them without judgment can in and of itself help uh, alleviate some of the intensity and create kind of better pathways up that ladder. Um, I think that's pretty fundamental to the process of it and the compassion, the self-compassion is, is important. And what's frustrating is that it's very difficult. Right. And right. it's very difficult because uh, our, our, the biological pathways for safety and social engagement are just not as developed as we ideally would like them to be, right? So if that's true, then accessing compassion and accessing empathy for yourself and compassion for yourself or for others. Um, and the patience, the patience required, the curiosity that's required to do this kind of work, it, it, it's, it's very challenging yeah. because those pathways simply are not active often enough or are not strong enough to handle the defensive energy as it comes up. Yeah. So it's like, that's the answer, but it's also the problem. And that's right. the frustrating part of this. So little bits at a time, I find to be more helpful rather than expecting some big home run. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. And I think everyone needs different ways to start to reconnect with their bodies too, because it is kind of a catch 22 that you kind of need to connect with your body to heal trauma, but trauma also cuts you off from connecting with your body or even makes connection with your yeah. body feel extremely threatening. Um, which was like, I'm thinking back to experiences that I had in therapy before I knew about any of this stuff where my therapist would like, uh, without explaining why, but suggest some sort of movement, like some sort of way of getting back into my body. And I had like a violently defensive, like absolutely not reaction to it. And actually like stopped seeing a couple of therapists because I felt like they were pushing me because I was against any sort of body mindfulness, even deep breathing would give me anxiety, like anything that was kind of grounded. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about what kind of some different options are for helping people start that reconnection. It's, it's, um, I think it's extremely individual. I have a hard time saying, we'll just do this or take a cold shower or take a deep breath. Or, um, I think that it's extremely individual and I think it's not only individual, but it's individual. And then based on that individual's state of their nervous system in that moment. Right. So taking a cold shower could be super helpful for someone doing that when they're in a very dorsal vagal shutdown, collapsed, dissociated state. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's helpful for one person. The next person's like, "What? Like, what are you talking about? Like, that, that's not going to happen. I can't get out of bed." Yeah. Um, but for someone who's in a very sympathetic state, who has got that flight fight energy going, having that cold dose of a shower might be helpful. That that's that state's already kind of active, so that cold hit might not be as it might be more doable. I don't know. If you're in a safe and social state and um, just kind of feel like playing around and taking a cold shower, it's probably a safe thing to do. You know, it's not gonna be an issue. So I have a hard time saying, just do this. It's really a very individual thing. I think that there's commonalities that can help us out. Um, I think that co-regulation can be helpful if you have a safe person in your life that can actually give you these cues of safety of you know the eye crinkles and like really listening to you and smiling and being able to be with you and your energy. That could be universally helpful. It's, um, I don't know how practical that is for everybody. Um, so there's universal thing. Music, I think, can be extremely helpful in general, but what kind of music and what kind of music per state? Mm-hmm. That's where the individual really has to become curious about themselves. 
Um, I think that the environment is going to be something that's very universal, but my environment of this like dimly lit place feels good for me, but for you or someone else, they're like, no, I don't want anything even close to darkness. I want lights on. I want TVs on. Right. <laughs> so it's like, you, you really got to be kind of become curious, like what works for me? And what, what I'm encouraged to do is people to do. So it's not as overwhelming as to break things down into like just music. What kind of music are you pulled towards? And what kind of music, not only are you pulled towards, but what kind of music speaks to you and actually helps you feel some relief? So you, in a flight fight state, you might be pulled toward hip hop or heavy metal. That's kind of where I go to. Mm-hmm. But if I really want to change my state, I might go to like some oldies. I might listen to Etta James or something like that. Because that, the, the vocal prosody, hearing her voice, hearing someone who has a lot of vocal prosody, like the sing-song equality, mm-hmm. can help you to, it's a, a neuroception of safety. If someone can have vocal prosody, that means that they're safe. Mm-hmm. So hearing a singer utilize a lot of vocal prosody can actually be a cue of safety versus a heavy metal singer who's like screaming. That's not really safety, but it might speak to your flight fight state. Right. So you, you could be really curious about like what music am I pulled toward and then what state am I in and what music actually helps me climb my own polyvagal ladder and feel more safety or have some energy return or some energy discharge. Yeah. And it could also be silence. Like silence, I, I when I'm in a more of a dorsal place and I just need silence, like I allow myself to sit in silence. Yeah. 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 No, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about how when I'm in a flight state, I always love really like uh, kind of like angry rap music. Yeah. That's always my go-to. And yeah. I also, I think was definitely someone who was like constantly stimulating myself because relaxation was actually super uncomfortable for me. So I like to have yeah. like TV music, my phone, um, you know, yeah. Uh, lots of social interaction, but it was very driven by that kind of like anxious flight state of like, gotta go, gotta go. Because if I like sit down and slow down, I might actually start like connecting with some emotions that I really don't want to connect with. I I think it's a really common thing for a lot of people, the kind of needing constant distractions, but it's, I don't want to like slow down and sit down and have to kind of feel that stuff. Yeah. I think, I think that's going to be a common issue for someone who's more in their flight fight energy because their body is prepared to run away or fight more or less more or less so asking them to be still and meditate it's it's their body's like you're you're putting me in danger by immobilizing me right the body wants to move around yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh my God. I was just thinking about how um, I'm like connecting so many things from talking to you. I used to go to yoga classes and, you know, at the end of yoga classes, they do, I forget the pose, but it's the pose where you're just supposed to lay on the ground for like five minutes. Yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. Savasana, Savasana. And everyone would always be like, I love Savasana. It's so relaxing. And I would literally like, as soon as they were like, it's time for Savasana, I'd be like, and it's time for me to leave, (laughs) pick up my yoga mat and walk out. And um, people would be like, you should really stay. And I was like, I didn't know why. I had no idea why. I just knew that it felt completely uncomfortable and unsafe to lay on the ground i also hate uh hated closing my eyes in public like anytime they would ask you to close your eyes and meditate it was like nope eyes stay open gotta stay vigilant yeah Yeah, so doing these prescriptive things of like do this i don't know much about yoga so but like do this pose or meditate this way i I get the intent but um why can't we meditate with our eyes open why can't we meditate while walking why can't we just include more and if you want to call it just be more mindful that's fine too so I, i don't see the usefulness of of telling people how to do things exactly i think it's fine to guide and say hey this might be helpful but for you it might be a terrible idea and if you want to make some adjustments to it go right ahead and i think walking mindfulness walking meditation for someone who's in a flight energy that's might be kind of ideal but but you have to be able 
you don't have to, you can do whatever the hell you want, but <laughs> ideally you are able to really feel what it's like to go for a walk while you're in a flight energy and to really feel the experience in your muscles and that mindfulness can actually help to relieve that stuck energy and get back up to a safe and social state. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, with co-regulation, um, because, you know, this is something that ideally starts with, uh, with babies and their attachments to their parents, but a lot of people don't receive that co-regulation. What does it look like in therapy with a teenager or an adult who's kind of learning how to co-regulate in a therapeutic setting? It's a lot of it's modeling. So with therapists, like we tend to stay in the cognitive and there's a ton happening that we don't have to say out loud. And so as someone's talking to me, a lot of it is me just being in my genuinely compassionate place and my natural co-regulation come out, my, my ability to utilize my voice to show that I'm listening, yeah. <laughs> that I care, and that I'm with them. If, if I'm speaking in a very monotone voice, that means I'm in a defensive state. But if I'm able to use like but the sing song, I'm not going to sing for you, but <laughs> if I use my voice to be more up and down that, that vocal prosody, their nervous system will pick up on that. I don't have to say it. I don't have to show them like, hey, I'm going to talk to you this way. Right. Um, their nervous system will feel that it might help to bring some conscious awareness to what helps in the moment. But first and foremost, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to be that compassionate person as best I can and be in my say, own safe and social state. And from there, the vocal prosody comes out. And from there, uh, a gentle eye contact happens. And from there, eye squints happen as I'm listening. They'll see my eyes squint and they'll make these little wrinkles in my eyes. And that's an indication to their nervous system that I'm safe. Because if I wasn't able to do that, that would mean I'm in a defensive state. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if, if another mammal's in a defensive state, their eyes go wide and that uh, other mammals, so my, my client, their nervous system is going to pick up on that and that's going to reinforce their defensive state. Yeah. They're going to see me in a defensive state. It's like, oh, something's wrong. <laughs> but if I'm in my own safe and social state, that's going to convey to them, I'm a safe mammal. And that's going to tell their nervous system, it, it, it might be okay to start climbing the polyvagal ladder. That's at least part of it. So nonverbal communication kind huge. of, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's um, well, I mean, mammals communicated nonverbally for probably a very long time before we had words, right? Right. <laughs> and that doesn't stop. That's still very much alive, um, not just in our body posture and whatnot, but our, our facial affect, our ability to utilize our facial muscles, even like tilting my head to the side as I listen or talk, like using my neck muscles means I have access to my safe and social state because mm -hmm. that, lives, that lives up here in the face and the neck and connects to the heart. Yeah. So the, uh, yeah, co-regulation is just, I do the best I can to be self-regulated. Yeah. And co-regulation kind of happens naturally from that. Yeah. Um, now we do want to bring, I think some, some level of conscious awareness to it. So we might proc, I might uh, process with the client, how the session went. Did I do a good job listening to you? how did you feel about how I was for you in session to kind of help them bring some processing, some conscious awareness to like, yeah, I did feel listened to. And, and like, what helped you to feel listened to? Yeah. Um, what told you that I was, you know, that I cared about what you, what you had to say. So that kind of stuff can help bring a conscious awareness to put some pieces together that can be helpful and that they can build on because if they can identify with me, then in the next relationship, they might be able to recognize, I know what safety feels like, cause I've had it with Justin. Right. It gives them a so reference. There's a reference point exactly. for safety. It's, yeah. Exactly. So we're building that, the feeling of it, we're building a conscious awareness to how it feels. Yeah. We're building a conscious awareness to my behavior. How do I act that tells you I'm safe? So putting all these reference points in place, now they can go to the outside world and be more likely 
to be like, the way I feel with this person is substantially different than the way I feel with Justin in the wrong way. Right, right. So then that's, that's an indication, that's a red flag that we might be on the wrong path. Yeah. Versus when I talk with someone who does listen to me, I feel more similar to when I feel with Justin. And hopefully I'm doing a good job at right. providing these things and my reference point is accurate. Yeah. But, but it's an emotional somatic like reference point of what safety feels like, what it looks yeah. like. Yeah, it really ties into those ideas of like um, reparative experiences and yeah. relational healing, which is like yeah. if you've grown up without having safe connection, you know, you got to start somewhere and just having a reference yeah. point for, okay, not everyone is going to make me feel, you know, in unsafe yeah. in the ways that I have felt can be pretty helpful as just a first step kind of towards those safe connections with other people. Yeah. Do yeah, you, um, I, I, oh, I would, I would. Oh yeah, I would, I would add to that that there seems to be some. Tell me if you if you disagree, but there seems to be some sort of shame involved in admitting to yourself, I don't have these safe people in my life, and I am hiring a therapist, or I am buying a course, or I am reading this book, or whatever the hell it is. There doesn't seem to be a lot of pride in that, and I guess I kind of get where people are coming from, but at the same time, you're aware of it and you're actively doing steps to make change. So yeah, to me that seems like a pretty awesome thing. It's yeah. something. It's building those reference points. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know if you disagree with that or not, but there seems to be a lot of shame around that. Yeah, no, I do agree. And I think like what's complicated about it is that even if someone does have a number of, you know, loving and safe in the way that these are non-abusive, like treat you well type of connections, you might still not be able to access the feeling of safe connection. Um, and it, it can create like a feeling of being lonely or, or feeling unsafe with people um that can be harder yeah. to recognize and i'm speaking from personal experience here as well like i have friends that love me i have like people that love me but like i don't feel it i don't feel right. that feeling of like vulnerability and like safe connection and i still feel really like alone and uncomfortable connecting with people and um yeah. i think yeah it can be it can be complex in that way right like it's not just based on the relationships yeah. but your ability to open yourself up to you know, the vulnerability, like there's the yeah. vulnerability that's needed to even get that connection and co-regulation. And maybe you don't feel comfortable with that to begin with. Vulnerability, I think feels uncomfortable. It's kind of, it kind of <laughs> is. And especially if you live in a defensive state more often than not, then accessing that top of the ladder, safe and social state is going to feel very different. It's going to feel very uncomfortable. And even going from shutdown into your fight energy, that's going to feel uncomfortable because you, if you live in a state of depletion, all of a sudden having this energy within you is like, what the hell's going on? Like, this is different. It's freaking me out. And the coping skill might be to go right back down into that shutdown state because that's, that's kind of um, safer or more, more, more predictable. We'll say yeah. at least yeah. that's co comfortable. Maybe is, is a better word. Uh, but something I've, I've noticed with my clients and I, I've worked with kids for, for years. I used to, I don't ask anymore, but I used to ask them if, cause it became so predictable, but I, I used to ask them if they, if they feel their parents love hmm. and they would always say, I know my parents love me. And mm -hmm. I, was, I was like, I know you know it, but do you feel it? And 99% yeah. of the time they would say no. And the only like 1% of the time where they wouldn't say no would be where they have a pretty good relationship at home, really solid environment. And they had some sort of external trauma. Like they went through a thing, like a dog attack or something like that. We'll say, right, yeah. but they feel their parents love and there's, that's a resource for them. But the vast majority of the kids I've worked with in therapy, I mean, the vast, vast majority will always say, no, I don't feel it because there is some sort of uh, work that has to be done there between the parent and the child. It's, yeah. it's like, it's this predictable answer of no, I don't feel it. Yeah. It's not their fault. 
It's just that that the the ability to connect with their parent has either been severed or was never developed in the first place or got repeatedly severed maybe. Yeah. And so there is this sort of uh, hole. Is that the right word for it? Or, or um, repair that needs to happen. I'm not trying to put that, but there's, there's, there's something that has to be worked on. Right. Yeah. And that, that constantly, I, I, I have found to be a predictable um, potential to come to therapy. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like I'm Mm -hmm. losing my words here. No, I I understand. Risk factor. We'll say risk factor. Kind of that feeling of, of rupture in the felt, felt connection and love versus like rational connection and love. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's something that is a really huge, like part of healing for a lot of people is the transition between knowing something and, and knowing something in your body. And like, I'm thinking of a, a kind of different example, but for like sexual assault survivors, like I know it wasn't my fault versus like, I feel it wasn't my fault. Yeah. Um, or, you know, there's a lot of different situations that could apply to. And Absolutely. I've had some really cool experiences with people when I was doing therapy with them or when I was a client of like, when you can feel that happening, like you can feel it going from like, I know it to like, oh, I know it, I know it, know mm. it. And I'm not really sure exactly what creates that shift, but I know it when I see it and I, I think it's important um I yeah think, well a, a big part of understanding that I think is the story follow state concept that's a Deb Dana thing also yeah where the thoughts that we have in our head are going to match the political state that we're in or it's going to it's going to be a directly influenced by it and our thoughts can influence our state as well but um the political state that we're in is going to lead to the thoughts that we have in our head so if you're in a very shut down state the thoughts in your head are going to be more about uh, how worthless you are. Not that I believe that, but it's going to be a lot of worthlessness and emptiness and what's the point and there's helplessness. No and, yeah. There you go. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So you can cognitively learn that's nonsense, but your body is still in that shutdown state. So the new thought doesn't match with the political state. Right. So learning something new isn't enough. Yeah. The, the reframe can be helpful or the outright refutation of, no, your thoughts are nonsense. Here's the reality of it. You do have value. You like you're a human being, you have value. You exist. Yeah. Um, these feelings are here for a reason. So you can give them all these like new pieces of knowledge or understanding, but it doesn't match the shutdown state. Yeah. So it doesn't really go super far. So when you learn that's that's kind of the idea. Um, now, when things begin to shift is when that nervous system has gathered enough cues of safety to begin that ladder climbing. And then those thoughts of, right. They like match up for the first time and it's like, yeah, yeah kind of sink in yeah, on a deeper there level. You go. Yeah. I like the, yeah, exactly. A little motion. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So then it's like, oh, these things I've heard now they make sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Do you work with couples? I never have. And that's something that I don't have I, maybe once, but I, I'll say no. I, I never have. It's something I think would be tons of fun. It just has never come up in my uh, career so far, but I think it's yeah. something I'd really like to do. Yeah. Well, one thing I was thinking about with the co-regulation piece is that um, I think in our society, there's a lot of actual just societal shame and lack of awareness about the need for co-regulation. Like all you hear about is self-regulation. That's like, that's what yeah, everyone yeah. knows about is self-regulation. Yep. And like, I didn't, I mean, I heard about self-regulation when I was a kid, didn't hear about co-regulation until I was doing this research, you know, a couple of years ago. And um, it really sent me onto a journey of, of just challenging, like, 
I guess a lot of the ideas about like codependency that are that our society kind of pushes where it seems like there's this very hyper independence that's kind of like normalized yeah. and yeah. it's cultural as well as kind of being a trauma response but it's this very like cultural norm of of kind of independence yeah. being really highly valued and not a lot of healthy modeling for interdependence or or for the fact that we do need other people you know needing other people isn't inherently bad it's actually this very like natural you know set of survival instincts and yeah. Um, so I think for for that reason, where I'm leading with this is that a lot of people don't know how to ask for co-regulation or that it's even okay to need co-regulation. Like they'll be in this state where it's like, if I'm feeling weird, like I have to fix it. I have to regulate. Right. And of course, although being able to self-regulate is this great asset, like even as an adult, you know, having a partner or a friend that you can safely co-regulate with really helps with self-regulation. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't even know that they're really allowed to ask for or aren't given the tools right. to ask for in their relationships. Like, I really need you to like yeah. listen to me and give me a hug right now or, or whatever that looks like, you know? Yeah. It, it's a, um, it's another one of those things where it's like, it's the thing that we need, but it's also the thing that's extremely hard to get if you don't know what safety feels like. And if you haven't surrounded yourself with people who are capable of providing co-regulation. Yeah. So it's this really kind of twisted up thing, right? But it is, it's a basic biological need. So it's, it's, um, I, I don't know, like everything you said, I agree with. <laughs> and then it, you kind of get stuck on like, you need it, you don't have it. Yeah. And that's where the professional aspect kind of comes in. It was like, this is the best I can do is hire someone to give me some co-regulation and all this, all this other stuff. But uh, the, the, the hyper independence is something that I, I think I've seen a lot with the kids I work with in school districts and with, in therapy that we expect kids to self-regulate and that's just not, um, it's entirely realistic Yeah, <laughs> because the co-regulation, especially for kids is so fundamental to their, their functioning and we want to work towards self-regulation, but there is definitely a, it's a big ask, especially if kids have been uh, very traumatized and whatnot. Yeah. But what we do in therapy and in school districts and, is we focus on the kid's behavior and we focus on here's a new coping skill and top down stuff like learn this, learn this. And that doesn't go super far. So it's like, and then we wonder like, why didn't you use your coping skills? And this is probably true for adults as well, right? It's like, why didn't you use your coping skills? It's like, even though you taught them to the kid and I, I always, this is something I, I always saw and I'm like, this isn't going anywhere. You, you're, we're teaching, 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 but they're just not right. there. Like, are those just, tools accessible when they actually need them? Right. Like, no, right. yeah. This kid lives in a consistent state of flight, fight, shutdown. So these are great skills and these skills become useful once they get to the point up their ladder enough to be like, oh, I have a skill for this. Yeah. And then they use them. So it's still worthwhile to teach it, but there definitely has not been enough placement on how can we as adults be with that children and i think it's still important to expect like success yeah to expect certain classroom norms and, and behavioral norms amongst adults and whatnot like we can expect that but like how can we be a part of that in a, in a really healthy co-regulative way i think that hyper independence as a means to cope with our own stuck stuff is probably not very helpful but encouraging independence and success and i'd, I'd say more like mutual independence and cooperation and volunteerism like these are probably really good qualities, I think, but you can't neglect the fact that we need each other on a very biological level. We need safe other people. So what can we do as individuals to be safe other people's for 
other individuals, right? Yeah. I think if you get enough people who have that mindset, you're gonna have a pretty kick-ass society, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. But, yeah. I, but a, lot, a lot of this is, um, it's, it's frustrating because there is an individual aspect to this. Co-regulation happens between two individuals. Right. So the individual is fundamental, but the individual also needs <laughs> the other individual. Yeah. And it is this kind of, I don't know the word for it, but is the circular logic kind of thing, it's, it feels like at times. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a catch-22 a there you little go. bit. It's like, yeah. You're better with the words. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> no, yeah. I So one of the things that I, I focus on a lot with CPTSD is like attachment, um, attachment styles and attachment patterns and stuff like that. And um, I, I find that people's like attachment and relationship patterns tend to be like really tied to their um, their kind of nervous system states and, and that sort of thing as mm. well. And it can be, I think, one of the most like debilitating symptoms for people with CPTSD is um, knowing that they need and that they want reparative experiences with safe people, but also having, you know, just severe flashbacks, emotional flashbacks and um, yeah. triggers that come just from trying to connect with another human and yeah. and then there's the problem that in this country a lot of people don't have health care can't access therapy um yeah, you know right, yeah, <laughs> can't yeah. can't access yep. good good mental health care so right. i think my question is um what advice would you have to people who are are not able to access either they're not able to access therapy or they're not able to access a therapist who kind of knows how to how to work with them on this stuff you know and um yeah what advice would you have for someone for ways that they can kind of approach these things in in their own lives and relationships the, the first thing that came to my mind and maybe the first step is and it's not easy but can you validate that you do have those impulses can you validate the impulse to connect with somebody else is alive within you. And I'm, that's different than going out and seeking it and asking for it or paying for it or whatever. It's like, can you, can you just recognize that it, that is within you and can that be good enough for the, this present moment? So if you can sit with that as much as possible, then I, I, I just, I just think validation goes a long way. Yeah. Like it's a real thing. So rather than it being this thing that lives within you that you're acting on and seeking out and probably going all the wrong directions, can you first, before you act, can you just kind of be with it and allow that validation to happen, which is, it's not easy. Validation is not easy. Uh, Self-validation is not easy, especially if you haven't received it from others. So it, it's a big ask, but I think that is, that can be a first step before going out and finding it is just validate it, be with it. And I think that if you can build that self, uh, self-compassion a little bit, mm-hmm that validation for what your need is, then the, the potential to find it in a healthy way, I think is going to go up. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the, the shame around needs themselves can be such a big barrier because mm. a lot of kids, if they, if they don't have their needs met, you know, chronically, a lot of the times that's part of where that shame stems from is this idea of like, I'm bad and my needs are bad because kids aren't able to conceptualize like, my needs aren't being met because of my parents' own limitations and, and, and emotional capacity, you know, kids are naturally going to be like, my needs are unreasonable. They can't be met. Um, yeah. or they're not being met because I'm bad or I'm not, I'm not good enough in some way. And so there's a self blame. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of self blame. 
um, yeah, it was a huge thing for me to just like understand what attachment needs and co-regulation needs are and be like, oh, those are good. Those are normal. Okay. Yeah. So the fact that I didn't get those, it wasn't because I needed too much. It was because I didn't get enough. And that was like a really huge shift, you know, away from self-blame. Um, which is why I think, you know, uh, to some extent, just kind of psychoeducation and learning about what attachment needs are, um, mm. and what co-regulation needs are can be helpful, you know, uh, to yeah. kind of validate people be like, oh no, like if, if you didn't get, you know, this kind of consistent, warm and, uh, warm and connected care as a kid, like that was a, a real loss and not yeah. a matter of you needing too much, you know? I agree that psychoeducation can go a long way. Cause it's, it's value free. It's judgment free. It's like, this is just, this is just the reality of the situation is that we do need these things. And if we don't get them, um, it has, it, it affects us. It affects us later on in life for years and years and years. So yeah, just having that judgment free new, um, education can, can go a long way. And, and people say that through the podcast is just, just learning about political theory, just learning about how it applies to their life. It just having those new understandings makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking about like when you were talking about the self-validation too, that, you know, for for trauma, like the the perceived safety or danger doesn't just come from outside stim stimulation, it comes from internal, the internal environment as well, right? Yeah. So people can get triggered um by the ways they're thinking and feeling, you know, uh or, yeah. or thoughts and feelings that kind of pop up. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of people who are like, Yeah, I had a flashback like from feeling lonely or from you know thinking about like and i you know i know it's kind oh, of complicated yeah. like where it originates from but yeah. um yeah, yeah yeah so creating like a safer internal environment i think you know even though it's easier said than done is also a really important piece and i i know with like attachment um they talk about how if you grew up with like an insecure attachment style and then you're earning secure attachment as an adult um, the the kind of one of the steps for that that I've read about is this idea of creating an internal secure attachment with yourself um, mm. as kind of the foundation for learning how to securely attach with other people. And when I think of that, I, I think it kind of fits with like the idea of inner child healing, where it's like you're you're yeah. learning, to, learning to give yourself some of that consistency yeah. and validation that yeah. you were missing before. But yeah, yeah again, that it's hard if, if you don't have any like blueprint for that. It is, but those sort of metaphors can be helpful. I, I personally don't invest a whole lot into thinking of ourselves as parts or some sort of child living within us. I, the metaphor, I get it. And as I come up in therapy, I'm not going to say like, no, no, like I get it. But I, I, I always consistently want to, at least by the end of that session, bring them to the present moment. So metaphorically, we can say there's a child within you that has these old feelings i get it but but also you right now in that chair in the therapy room you are having these feelings right the present you like just the you that exists so yeah not just the metaphorical just the conceptualization but um bringing it to the present moment to to the you that exists right now with me in this room bringing it to that is is going to bring them more into their body today yeah. not not as a metaphor in their head but as a real thing happening right now. And I think that taking those metaphors and bringing them to the present moment is extremely important. Yeah. Because yeah. we, we can live in metaphors for, for days. Yeah. 
but this is happening right now. Yeah, I guess I think of the like inner child metaphor as a, a metaphor for a very real present phenomenon, which is the overwhelming like fear and shame and like panic that that comes yeah. up when you're like, I'm an adult, I know I'm okay rationally, but I'm having this like overwhelming emotional sensation of like helplessness and shame yeah, totally. and you know, th those sorts of kind of yeah flashbacks yeah. to like childlike states that come up with CPTSD. 100%. 100%. Yeah, so it's old feelings and it's, it's, uh, it's real. Like I, I get it. And so I, there's no, I'm not going to argue with a client about like, no, no, you're not a child anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's not about that. It's like, we, we can name it that we can call it that. Yeah. But, but by the end of the session. Connected to the, the present experience. Yeah. It's happening right now in you right now as an adult, it's a real feeling you're having right now. Yeah. Not just something that you felt as a child that you're feeling now, which is true. But the the adult like you you yeah you know what yeah. I mean I, I just I think that the closer we can get to the present moment the better yeah and, and with these mental metaphors and and whatnot it to me it, it my my impression is it takes us one step removed from the present moment it's closer that's cool let's roll with it but the closer we can get to the present moment being in the present moment yeah. owning our feelings in the present moment I think the better because that's where the ladder of climbing is going to continue to happen metaphors can are helpful. Yeah. But to me, it's just like a, it's a little bit of a layer that we can work toward um, getting to the present moment, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. I, I think where I was um, starting off with that was this idea that like, by learning more self-validation self and self-compassion, um, it helps create a more internally safe environment where yeah. your, you know, your vagal yeah. break is going to be strengthened. Um, and so it's, yeah, there's kind of like this, I feel like, uh, and, and that gets a lot easier when you also have a mirror for it. So it's like, for you know, for me, when I began to have, uh, like more safe and secure connections with people who I could co-regulate with and who treated me compassionately. And I was also learning about these things and kind of getting like the psychoeducation piece. It also, all of a sudden was a lot easier to, um, give myself like more of val that validation, compassion yeah. and acceptance and, yeah, the same way that like with trauma, all of these complex things kind of feed into each other. It's like kind of the same thing with healing, you know, like all these different dynamics Absolutely. kind of started like working together to be like, oh, I'm Absolutely. actually starting to kind of feel better, you know? Absolutely. So and with all that complexity, I feel like as a therapist, my job or part of my job is, is to reduce the amount of complexity. Yeah. And again, the closer we can get to the present moment, I mean, I don't think you can get less complex than just existing in your body in the present moment. So the closest <laughs> we can get to that. The, you know, the better. And it's, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the stories and the metaphors and the who did what. And it's like, it's, it's so, all that stuff gets so intertangled and it's um, the closer we can get to really getting to the true experience that you're having in the room. You know, I think the better. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I think those are all the questions that I have planned. Um, if you have anything else that uh, you've thought of or that you'd like to say before we end, the floor is yours, but I think I'm out of, out of prompts. <laughs> <laughs> um, I appreciate you asking me on. Hopefully this was um, worth your time and your audience will get something out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they can find out more about what I do at justinlmft.com. That's kind of the hub for it. And there's a blog and a podcast i have a course there that helps people to feel more in the present moment um so that's yeah justinlmft.com is probably the best spot and uh, yeah that's about it i, I appreciate cool. you asking me on thank you so much <laughs>